Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 59 of the Lawyerist podcast, where we talk with David Zvenich about why lawyers should learn to code. Today's podcast is sponsored by Clio. Lawyers, it's time to let your mind do what it was trained to do, practice law. You need Clio, the leading legal practice management software to help take care of the business side of running your practice. Find out more and sign up for a free trial at Clio.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist so that we don't have to worry about getting interrupted when we're being productive, and we love what they do for us. You can visit Ruby at callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial. If you enjoy our show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on support the podcast to help us keep new episodes coming every week. So, Aaron, uh, I, I just clicked on a link from Carolyn Elephant um, that I thought was interesting. She's been doing a series called Make Money Monday. And today, her advice... It sounds like it goes with our 50-cent topic from a couple of weeks ago. It kind of it kind of does. Although, mm-hmm. uh, Carolyn is absolutely not a gangster rapper. But I assume she is rolling in buckets of $100 bills. <laughs> uh, potentially, yeah. Okay, good. Um, Go on. So today's advice is to shed unnecessary expenses. And I think the last one will make a lot of people at certain organizations sit up and take notice. It is um, maybe you don't need to be paying your bar association dues. And she makes a couple points in there. Like, for example, you're not really getting much benefit from the discounts that bar associations may um, may be making for you. Um you know, check and see, are you actually going to conferences? Are you getting benefit from it? And maybe you shouldn't be paying for it. That's her advice. So, I mean, on first glance, I I think it's totally true that many bar associations are unnecessary expenses. I think there's potentially a problem with the attitude of trying to grow a thriving business based on getting rid of any expense that's unnecessary. I think one of the most compelling reasons for joining a bar association would be if you can find ways to use it to invest in growing your practice through networking, through CLE, through committee leadership that then gets you referrals and prominence in the industry. It isn't necessary to do any of those things, but I think you would be holding yourself back if you didn't do them. There, there's a tendency, I think, to look at things like bar association dues as just a straight up cost benefit proposition, and I don't, I don't think that's right. I mean, I, I should, I should disclose, I eventually dropped my bar association membership um, because the main benefit I was getting out of it was fast case, and um, when I stopped practicing actively, I didn't really need fast case anymore, and so I dropped it, and it was hard for me to justify the the dues at that point. But um, while I was practicing, it was a different story. It wasn't just fast case membership. There was I, I was an active member of the bar, and I got things out of it. Um, it doesn't make sense for me to do that anymore, but um, but it did. And you know, the, it's hard to put a dollar figure on you know being a leader in your in your state bar, or your local bar, and things like that. And I I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I take Caroline's Carolyn's point, which is like some people are members of lots of different bars. 
Yep. You may be a member of a minority bar or a practice area bar or a, plus your local bar, plus your state bar. And her point is maybe you don't need all of those. I mean, I'm totally comfortable with the advice of take a gut check every six months or every year and just see what things you're spending money on and whether you're getting out of them what you need to to justify them. I think, and I think bar associations can absolutely be part of that assessment. And for some people, if they're essentially members in name only and all they're getting is some of the affinity software services and they're not use, using them enough or they aren't worth the $400 a year, I, I think that's okay advice. I think it's mostly misguided for most people, though, who should be rather looking at ways to get more out of their bar associations that are potentially not as tangible, but more likely to actually help grow their practices. That makes sense to me. Like, so, so yeah, if, if, what you, if what you find when you try to do a cost benefit on your bar association is that the only thing you're getting out of it is your software, then... One possible outcome might be, okay, I can just drop this and I don't have to bear this expense anymore. But the other one might be, how could I get more out of it? And, you know, there may be better opportunities in some bars than others, but if you can get more out of it, I think that's probably the better approach. That's my perspective. Yeah, that makes sense to me. We're giving a grain of salt to Carolyn's post and her advice. Um, but with that in mind, here's my conversation with David on Coding for Lawyers. I am Dave Svenich, uh, and I am a legal hacker uh, working for 18F. Uh, let's take those in order. What is a legal hacker? Well, so a legal hacker, um, it's usually a lawyer. They're not always a lawyer. Um, but these are well, we are folks who are trying to basically work within the legal system um, to make the access to legal services uh, more, uh, more enjoyable and sort of... Um, uh, better for uh, for people who interact with the legal system. Um, and usually this has a technology bent, uh, though it doesn't always have a technology bent. In my particular case, it's very much involved with technology. Um, but the, the main premise is that we can reimagine what the law uh, and the legal system should look like um, to provide better outcomes for people who interact with it. I, I'm always at a loss to tell people exactly what I think hacking is, but I, I think it's sort <laughs> of um, outside of the box, novel solutions... Um, that generally involve creating shortcuts to solutions or to the out to the desired outcome. Yeah, I think that's right. It's kind of like you know the sort of the if we had a TV based mascot, it would probably be MacGyver. You know, you say you take one piece <laughs> over here and one piece over there, and then all of a sudden you've escaped from a burning building, right? Um, gotcha. And that's kind of, that's kind of how I think of you know hacking is that you've got uh, you've got a system that seems you know totally uh, totally uh, unable to be thought of in a different way, and sort of by just tweaking one or two things or um, pulling one thread a little bit, um, all of a sudden you get a totally new and exciting and interesting way of uh, approaching an issue. And so that's legal hacking. And so what's 18F? Yeah, so 18F is my day job. Um, I am, <laughs> I call myself a bureaucracy hacker at 18F. Uh, more formally, my title is the Director of Acquisition Services for 18F. Um, 18F is a that's part an, that's of the... That's an appropriately bureaucratic title. Yeah, correct. Um, <laughs> and so 18F is uh, sort of a weird startup um, within the federal government. Um, formerly, we are a digital consultancy uh, for the federal government, uh, within the federal government. Um, and what that means is that we have a bunch of developers, designers, product, uh, product folks, um, change strategists, and acquisition specialists, all of whom are working with federal agencies to re, uh, re, re, uh, restructure uh, and, and actually build digital services for the American public. Um, and it's part of GSA. 
Um, and it's pretty new. We started in March of 2014 as, I think, eight people. Um, and today, in March of 2016, we have about 160 people. So pretty uh, sizable growth. Um, and all over the United States, uh, now a minority of folks here are in D.C., um, but, um, you know, all over, all over the U.S. at this point. What would be some good examples um, to kind of show people what it is that you do? Yeah, so 18F generally um, does a number of sites that are now public, and you can go see them. So a good example is uh, beta.fec.gov. Um, that's B-E-T-A dot F-E-C.gov. Um, it's a beta version of the Federal Election Commission's website. Um, and it's kind of a good example of a lot of the different things that we do. So we helped uh, provide a more user-friendly way of accessing uh, federal election data, um, provided a pretty robust API on top of that data. Um, we also are working around the regulations and advisory opinions that the FEC works uh, puts out. Uh, to make it easier for people to access uh, information from the FEC. So that's sort of one example. Um, we also work, um, you know, since you have a primarily legal audience, um, we're working on a thing called the e-regulations platform. Um, so CFPB and ATF, not 18F, but alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Um, we've been working with them to build out an e-regulations platform, so uh, an easier way of viewing uh, the CFR um, and so that's, that's another product that we're working on. Um, my own personal um, work is more around acquisitions. Um, so I have the unenviable task of making federal procurement joyful. Um, and I've been using a bunch of different approaches to, to get there. Um, but primarily, we're focusing on uh, open source, modular uh, procurement, uh, agile software development, and user-centered design. So you're not, um, you're not doing the traditional specking out a massive project and then um, ordering this huge waterfall development thing. <laughs> there are people in government who do, the, who do that and maybe yes. do that well, uh, but that, that's not me. Um, I'm, you'll find me doing sort of smaller, uh, more, you know, more well-scoped open source modules. And it sounds like what you're trying to do is um, take uh, really big, boring, uh, intractable-sounding problems and making, giving them a friendly interface uh, an API, opening up the data, um, designing it in a way that is accessible so that the public can actually use it for something. You nailed it. Okay. Well, I mean, the, good for the, me. Yeah. I mean, the, the great thing is that I, I sometimes joke with that. Um, I'm trying to, you know, my personal mission is to combine FITARA, which is the Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act. So FITARA, combine FITARA with the Unix philosophy um, of trying to have you know, a good governance uh, around IT management um, and IT acquisition and combining that with the, the central thesis that, you know, basically all applications should be written to do one thing really well. Um, they should use common interfaces, um, you know, could be text interface or some other common interface, um, but allow, allow systems to talk to each other in a predictable way and then good things happen. So I'm a big fan of, uh, I'm a big fan of what I think you are doing at AT, AT&F. Um, and, and I love that, but what I wanted to talk about today was, um, what I'm going to shift gears to now, which is you built a website called coding for lawyers. I think the website was first, yep. um, and you're sort of an advocate for lawyers learning to code. And so let's talk about that. Why, why should lawyers learn to code and why? So let me tell you from my personal experience of why I learned to code. Um, so, um, before coming to 18F, um, I was the general counsel of the D.C. Council, and the D.C. Council is the legislature in D.C. 
Um, when I started as general counsel, I did not code. Um, I had no software development experience. Um, I took like I think a Java class when I was in college, but didn't do very well at it. Um, it was not something that I thought of as part of my day-to-day -day work. Um, and sort of an unusual thing happened to me while I was general counsel, um, which is I had a problem. <laughs> and it turned out that what I thought was a really, really difficult technology problem was actually not a very difficult technology problem. It was a very simple technology problem. It was a contractual problem or a um, sort of a policy problem, but not actually a technology problem. But I spent, um, and, and, and specifically it was around the publication of the DC official code. So my job was to formally publish the DC official code. Um, these are all the statutes and all, uh, all, all, all the laws that the legislature passes. Um, we compile them into the DC official code um, and make that available to the public. And we had historically done that in paper form. We also had this online portal. Um, and sorry to like go into all the details, but I, I can explain where I where, where how I came to this. No, that's okay. So we had published the code, um, and it was accessible to the public. But there was a developer in town, um, an engineer, um, who said, "I want to, I want the code. I want the underlying data for the code." And I said, well, "I don't know what you mean. You can just go to the website and look at all." Of it. I said, "No, I want the underlying data," and I, I really didn't know what he meant. Um, and I said, "So, so why? Why do you want the data?" He says, "Well, I want a permanent URL." So oh, that seems like that's a reasonable ask. Let me talk to the vendors and see if we can get that done. The vendor said, well, actually, no, we can't do this. Cost us additional money. So, hmm, well, I don't know. Um, and after sort of negotiating back and forth with a bunch of different people, um, someone suggested that I just release the code um, in an unannotated version um, in, uh, in the public domain. I said, hmm, okay, I, I don't know how this is going to solve anything, but you know, I understand that as a lawyer. I understand licensing. I understand you know, the idea of like publishing something. That makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I did that. I agreed to publish it in the public domain and assumed that you know, that would satisfy everybody's uh, concerns. What happened next totally transformed my, my, my perspective and, uh, and a lot of my professional uh, experience um, in that I was invited to a hackathon you know, hackathons are not usually productive uh, in many respects, but at this particular hackathon, um, I, I saw something that just knocked my socks off. I saw about 20 people gathered around a table um, who did not work together on a day-to-day -day basis, but they were able to collaborate in real time on building, a, uh, uh, building an application that published the code in this open source uh, browser. And it blew me away. I could not believe that this, this had happened. Um, I could not believe that something that good could be built in such a small amount of time by a small group of people. Mm -hmm. I assumed this was a huge technology lift. It wasn't. Um, and at that point, I said, I need to understand everything that just happened here. I wanted to reverse engineer, you know, how did you communicate with each other? It turned out it was a thing called GitHub. Um, what software is this? It turns out it was a thing called JavaScript. Um, you know, there were lots of different pieces that I wanted to sort of understand how it all worked. Um, and so that sent me on a personal um, exploration to learn um, how this all worked. Um, and, you know, I had turned to, to people that were at this hackathon. I said, well, how did you do that thing and how did you do that thing? Um, and about, uh, by about two years later, I was a full stack software developer um, in addition to my day job as, uh, as general counsel. And so I learned to code. Um, I found it personally fulfilling. Um, it was sort of an interesting set of challenges. You know, how do we do a thing? Oh, now I know how to do that thing. Um, how does that thing work? Now I've been able to sort of take it apart, put it back together, and now I know how it works. Um, but in my legal practice, 
I actually found that it made me a more effective lawyer. Um, there were certain tasks that previously were mundane and you know um, not automated that now having a little bit of understanding about how coding works, I could actually automate and make it easier and, and simpler for me to do my day job and accordingly uh, provide my clients a better level of service. So, I mean, with that, that that's interesting because it's basically um, it, it almost sounds like uh, coding is uh, a very particular set of skills plus the ability to read instruction manuals. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> the joke the joke among developers is that really like, you know, if if you want to learn how to code, learn how to Google first. Yeah. Uh, you know, that it's really just copying and pasting errors into the browser into Google and finding out how other people solve that error. Um, and and going through GitHub and looking through what other people have done um, and trying to get it to look kind of like that. Um, so that that's a lot of what I've been doing. Um, and I realize that there are not a lot of great um, uh, sort of manuals for uh, for lawyers who are trying to break into this space um, because it's not you know there's sort of a, an assumption set of assumptions about what you should know when you start to code. You know you're supposed to know about data types or you're supposed to know about functions, and these are things that are completely foreign to lawyers. Um, and so I decided to write a book called CodingForLawyers.com. Um, basically, you know, sort of a, to introduce concepts about uh, software development to lawyers in a in a language that they would understand. So there, you know, Supreme Court references and references to the United States Code and and things that lawyers lawyers get, um, trying to ease them into some of the concepts that apply every day in software development. And and so if you, I mean, what? Why should lawyers learn to code? What what do you, what is the benefit? I mean, you you mentioned for yourself it was automating some system systematic things that you wanted to do, but um, and and this is actually sort of for me it's something I'm trying to figure out, which is you know when you when you look at the software that's being built for lawyers, um, a lot of it is being built by people who have no idea what it's like to actually practice law, and so there's usually a disconnect. Yep. Um, with that software, some some um developers are able to study law practice and learn about it in the same way that they can learn about other things and then they produce beautiful things. But more often than not, they're creating solutions for solved problems or things that aren't yeah. problems. And and my feeling is that it, we need a critical mass of lawyers who need to, who know how to code so that they can understand at least how to start the solutions um, so that the, they can sort of hold the developer's hand and show them how to solve the problems. Because if you just sit there and say, give me this, you're not going to get the right thing either. So, Right. Yeah, so a, th- a couple, of, couple of reasons. I think, you know, the, high, the highest level reason is, you know, it's, it actually is a, uh, there are a set of things that um, software developers have done over the years that I think lawyers could just learn from, just cultural aspects. So, mm-hmm. one, you know, sort of one, one high-level thing that I think uh, software developers do really, really well is they, I think of the, the concept of version control, and they take version control seriously. Um, so if you have software developers all over the world who are working together on a shared document, they're very concerned about how you write, um, you write the documents in a way that it can be cleanly versioned and rolled back if there's a mistake. Yeah, and let me, let me break that down. Like, version control is track changes for Microsoft Word, but... Um, it is so much better than track changes exactly. in every possible way. 
Right. That lawyers should be using it, honestly, um, but it doesn't work with Microsoft Word. So exactly, and and it's, it is not so much that like you know there are a lot of people like oh well lawyers should just learn Git. Well, I don't I don't think it's going to be easy for lawyers to work. learn Git. It's, that's not going to work. But the concept of saying well maybe I should as a consumer of a legal service um, or as someone who provide you know gets Microsoft Word. Maybe I should be demanding better version control, or maybe I should be thinking in these terms so that I actually can provide better service to my client. Because as it turns out, you know, every single lawyer I know has the same problem where you know they've they've made their edits, they sent it over to two or three partners, the partners have made their changes, and then you are stuck trying to reconcile all of those changes. We've all been there. We all know that it's a problem. And it turns out there are, this is a solved problem in the software development space. And I think if more lawyers understood that, we'd be better consumers about saying, hey, actually, our legal tools should be better, too, because software developers have invested in better tooling. Yeah, there's a, so like there is a right way to think about templates and source and, and version control, and it is GitHub. And, and just, just even getting that conceptual framework in mind is actually pretty useful just for a contract drafter. Yep, Exactly. Um, similarly around data. So, you know, data is, you know, scary, you, you know, you think big data and, you know, what, what does this all mean? Um, but when you get right down to it, if you can use Excel and a lot of lawyers can't, but if you can use Excel, you can actually play in the data space. Um, and I think that if more lawyers felt some level of comfort with data, they could start to understand, well, Hey, wait a second. Now I can think through how I'm going to present my case, or I'm be, going to be able to get new evidence, or I'm going to be able to look through, um, you know, court dockets in a way that allows me to be a more informed consumer of data. Um, and I think everyone sort of acknowledges that data is playing a larger and larger and larger role in our lives and in the law. Um, and so having sort of a baseline understanding of how this works is also just a really helpful thing. Um, if you're a lawyer who doesn't understand what an API is, well, guess what? Get in line. A lot of lawyers don't. But APIs literally drive everything that we see on the internet at this point. And so if you don't know what an API is and you want to practice in any space that touches the internet, which turns out is almost everything, you're probably going to need to learn what an API is. Um, and so there's value in just learning some of these concepts because they're going to affect you day to day, um, whether you like it or not. They're kind of um, how, they're how the world works right now. Exactly. I mean, you, know, you don't necessarily need to know how an engine works, but you need to know that your car has an engine. Um, and a motor and wheels. Um, and at some point, you need to have that baseline understanding around how your computer works as well. Um, you may not need to know what your processors look like or your RAM or anything like that. Like, there's a lot of detail that you probably don't need to know. But understanding that you know, there's a thing called an HTTP protocol is something that's effectively going to matter for you. It also matters in some respects because you may be engaging in unsafe practices for your client. Um, that you should be aware of. So, for example, if you're using HTTP and not HTTPS for sensitive data, you've got a problem. Um, you've, you've got a serious problem as a lawyer. Um, if you're not using two-factor authentication and encryption for sensitive client information, you've got a problem. Um, and so having sort of a baseline understanding of these technical concepts is really important. And it turns out learning how to code is a good way to start in that space because it's real practical work. It's not, it's not you know, abstract. It's actual things that you're writing with your hands. And that, you know, that's the, the best way to learn. You know, one of the things that I found was, um, you know, Windows became popular in part because it, it, it sort of um, abstracted the, the way that you interact with your computer in a way that you never had to think about the fact that it was a, a node on a network. Right. Um, and, and eventually, at one point, I got tired of Windows. I switched over to, to Linux for a couple of years. And... 
um, Linux is the network, right? Like that is what the internet functions on. And it never lets you forget that your computer is just a node on a network. It makes you treat it that way, even if it's not even plugged into the internet. Um, and that started opening my eyes to the way that data flows on the internet and how it all works and how things connect to each other. And, and, and then when I started learning to code a little bit, uh, and I'm, and I'm very amateur, but, um, but when I started learning a bit about that, you look at a cool tool, um, like, uh, you know, like, like Facebook or, or Gmail or Twitter, and you start realizing that a lot of that stuff is stuff that you could build. Like you can get mm-hmm. your head around how that was put together and how you might do it yourself if you wanted to do something similar. And it's just kind of a, all of a sudden the world makes more sense. Yep. That's exactly what it was. I mean, I remember the day that I understood the concept of a client um, versus a server. And I, I talked to my wife about it. And she thought it was nuts. I was like, oh my God, there's a server and there's a client and my head explodes. Yeah. And she's like, I don't understand why this is a big deal. And you start to realize like, oh, this is how this is how the internet works. And it's like a really cool sort of moment of realization and clarity. Um, and I hope that everyone feels that sort of like, at some point, excitement around, um, you know, the, the internet. Um, and around the web. And maybe everyone already has. Like maybe people who are younger than me sort of intuit this stuff naturally. But for me, it was a big eye-opener. Well, let me take two minutes for our sponsors, and then we'll start talking about what's involved in learning to code. Today, we journey to the center of a lawyer's mind. This is Jeff. I'm stepping into his brain now. Jeff's brain is working on the case of a lifetime. Unfortunately, it's distracted with scheduling issues, documents, and timesheets. We need to act fast. I'm giving Jeff Clio, the cloud-based system that manages a lawyer's day-to-day operations. Clio handles your cases, billing, appointments, accounting. Everything you need to run your practice. There, that's better. With Clio, Jeff's brain can focus on what Jeff does best. Get the law practice manager more lawyers trust. Sign up for a free trial at clio.com slash lawyer or call 844-500-CLIO. That's 844-500-CLIO. This podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Now, Ruby is a sponsor, but I was also a paying customer. Ruby answered the phones for my law firm, so I know what I'm talking about when I say you really should give Ruby a try. And you should. Callers regularly told me how nice my receptionist was. Ruby made it easy for me to make my clients feel well cared for when they called. But what really made Ruby stand out for me was the way they treated me. If you've heard me talk about Ruby before, you've probably heard this story already. But when my first daughter was born, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone on the way to the hospital and updated my status so Ruby would know to hold my calls for 48 hours because I was going to be in the hospital for the birth of my first child. And then a few days later, when I checked in at my office, there was a little care package with a really nice onesie and a rattle and a bib and a couple of other things. And I was just so touched by that, obviously, because I'm still telling the story and now my daughter is six. But the point is that Ruby knows how to take care of people, both you and your callers. And I'm confident you will be just as happy with Ruby as I still am, because Ruby is still answering the phones now at Lawyerist. So you should give Ruby a try. And to do that, you just need to go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. And if you aren't happy for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks with Ruby. I'm pretty sure you will stick around, though. 
but since there's no risk, you might as well try. Okay, David, so you've convinced me. Um, I need to learn to code. And and when I ask that, I'm not just asking because I want you to demonstrate it for our audience, but like I'm a, I'm a self-taught, you know, I'm able to hack away at um, PHP and, and, and the, mm-hmm. the things that go into building WordPress. Um, but you know, I, I'm, I don't, I don't really know how to make a thing. Um, yeah. I, I know how to work with a thing, but I don't know how to make a thing. And, and at one point I had come to you and you, you sort of opened the doors for me by showing me how to work with a database. Um, and that was another one of those like, Whoa, I get it now moments. <laughs> um, right. and I just haven't had time to explore it more f- fully, but, um, but but I what I what I always feel like is I always feel um, like I'm just sort of hacking away not and not hacking in the like I'm an expert elite person but like I'm right. hacking away like a somebody who doesn't know what they're doing um, and you know every week I'm I learn that I've done something wrong the week before and so in addition to the thing I'm trying to fix this week I'm trying to go back or I'm trying to build something this week and I'm trying to fix something from last week um, right. and I feel like that's just an ongoing process for me. And and maybe that's just what learning to code is all about, but it is but what's so, the right way. So the funny thing is that, um, <laughs> there's a, there's a sticker on, on my laptop, um, which is winging it since forever. Um, and the, the reality is that every coder, every developer has gone through the same process. I mean, there may be a, uh, there may be a few, but I don't think there are. I think almost everyone who's ever learned to, to code has gone through the same ups and downs where you're making major progress and then you realize that, oh my God, everything that I've been doing for the last year was actually really terrible. I should have never done it that way and now I know a better way of doing it. And that learning experience is what's so important and actually really good. Um, you know, I was, was reading a blog post yesterday by a guy named Martin Fowler. Um, and Martin Fowler is a, you know, sort of a, a legend in this space of software development today. Um, and he described when he started to code as being the iron age. You know, he said, I'm in the, I started coding in the iron age and now they're in the cloud age. <laughs> um, and it's sort of an amazing thing to think this man has lived through multiple ages, right? This is literal eras of software development yeah. um, and has had to relearn everything that he knew at one point. And so the idea of sort of getting better and worse and trying to say, oh, okay, well, now I need to rethink how I've done that is totally normal. It's also, you know, a good pattern for, uh, for software development. One of the things that um, is, is good about the way that I think a lot of people approach software is that we expect the things to change over time. And there's actually a really good analog to, to law, um, which is, you know, I sometimes describe the, uh, the, the common law system as agile software development. You know, we don't pretend to know what the law will look like in every single possible case that may ever come before a court. We expect the court to say, well, what's this close to? Okay, I'm going to make that decision now that's precedent for the next decision. Um, and that's actually how software development happens too. You sort of have this iterative process where you say, well, I don't necessarily know every possible edge case that will ever exist, but I can test for this case and then I can test for that case and then I can build for that case. Um, and so there's, there's actually a lot of parallels between the legal, the legal system and software development. Um, that may be why they're both called code. Um, but um, as someone trying to learn how to, to write software, the best places to, to learn um, sort of depend on your, your individual way of learning. Um, so there are a lot of good books out there. So I actually started with Learning Python the Hard Way. So if you Google Learning Python the Hard Way, you'll find the book that I started to learn with. Um, you know, you could go to codingforlawyers.com. Um, there's, you there's, know what? Everybody wants to know what language to learn first. Yeah. So I like Python. 
Um, I'm just going to put it out there. I think Python is a good, a good language for people to use. Um, it has a lot of utility. It's a very expressive language. Um, it's English, um, so you can actually read it. Um, it doesn't have a lot of complications. You know, like JavaScript has this asynchronous thing going on that, that will throw off a lot of uh, beginners. So Python's a really good one. Ruby is used a lot, too, um, for a lot of web applications, particularly Ruby on Rails. Um, it does sound like JavaScript is... If you're interested in programming for the web, is kind of the way to go now, though. So yeah, I I personally, you know, I, I write almost all of my web applications in JavaScript today, um, and it's a great language. I love JavaScript. I, if you are if you are a mature developer, I almost always say write it in JavaScript. Um, but if you're just starting out, you really you can't go wrong with trying Python. Python's okay. a great language. It also does everything. It can do server side things. It can um, can get really deep into you know. You can get you could do a lot of web applications. You, you stuff can build software with Python, where you can't exactly. you can't build software with JavaScript. Well, actually, it turns out you can now, but that of that's, course, of that's, course somebody that's, has hacked it together. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but in general, in general, yeah, Python's a pretty powerful language, um, and you know, I I highly recommend it. Um, okay. But you know, the thing that I think really matters for people, if you're going to learn to code, is to find something you care about. So the day that I really started to understand how to code was the day that a, f- a friend of mine challenged me to write my first scraper. Um, and I was like, I don't know what a scraper is. And the scraper is basically a way of going to the web and pulling down data from a publicly available website. So in this particular case, I was really interested in sole source contracts. So DC, like all other governments, has a, a process by which you can sole source contracts to a, a vendor. And there's a public you know, listing of all of the sole source contracts but there's no database for it. There wasn't at the time. And so I wrote a scraper that would create a database from all these sole source contracts. So the thing is, I knew the domain. I knew what I was looking for when I would go to this website. But I didn't know how to extract it. I didn't know how to get into a database. And so I was able to learn how to do that by actually writing the scraper. And then once you've written your first scraper, then you start thinking, okay, well, how would I present this on the web in a way that would be useful to other people? And, oh, now that I've got this data, how might, how might I do some data analytics with it? And it really opens up your eyes to different things that you could do. But the way to start is just find something that you care about and try to make one thing a little bit better. Do you think um, websites like Codecademy and I don't even know what else is out there now, um, is, are those a useful way to, to get a feel for coding? Totally. Um, I have I have friends who have done it, who've, who've been successful with it. Um, again, it sort of depends on you know your personal um, your personal tolerance for classes. Um, you know my my own my own experience, like I said, was you know learning Python the hard way, asking a few friends, um, and you know writing a thing that mattered, looking at GitHub for similar things, um, googling all along the way. Um, but you know there are probably more structured ways than that. Um, and Code Academy is probably, if, if you're sort of the person that's not trying to wander in the wilderness for a couple of years before you figure out how to code, Code Academy is probably a great start. Um, and there, there, are other, there are other similar uh, options. So here's what I think is often discourages people when they start, is um, they start taking a course, whether it's on Code Academy or they, um, or they get a book, and all they're learning about is if-then statements yeah. and logic, and it's all in text. And probably the most exciting thing they're going to be able to do is maybe like a little blackjack game, but it's right. all going to be text-based. And yep. and they're looking at they're looking at Microsoft Word on their computer, and they're not they're not getting how the what what they're what they're learning right now translates to anything like 
the cool shit that we actually get to use on the internet or on our computers. Right. And, and for a long time, that kind of discouraged me too. I'm like, when do I actually get to learn how to build things? Right. Yeah. It, and it's, it's the thing to keep in mind is that Microsoft Word was built by like lots and lots and lots well, of engineers yeah. by like a major, major corporation. And a lot of the stuff on the web is too. Um, so, you know, if you're willing to quit your day job to really get into it, you know, you can probably build, you know, something amazing too. But if you're trying to just learn, you should expect to use text. Um, and, you know, lawyers, like, lawyers use text all the time. You know, I, yep. I, sometimes, I sometimes think, like, lawyers would actually be far more comfortable on the command line than, the, you know, than in Microsoft Windows um, because we're used to plain text. We want to read the decisions of the court. We want to read, um, you know, the, dis- read the actual content and not be distracted by all of the, you know, the, the formatting. Um, turns out that that's not true. We're human. We want to see, you know, we want to see formatting just like the rest of the world. Um, but you should not feel discouraged. This is a normal process. And it turns out, you know, sort of spoiler alert, actually building something like Microsoft Word doesn't actually, they're still writing text even to make the beautiful things. Well, that was what that, I was going to say is like the, the, that text happens when you push a button, it right. may initiate those if then, right. um, you know, uh, loops that you're writing and it's all happening in the background. The, the interface is just something that you lay on top of it, basically, when you've, when you've got the functioning down. Correct. I mean, if, if developers had to literally move every pixel around, nothing would ever work. And you see this a lot in free and open source software where um, first, all you get is a command line thing, which is like if you want to join two PDFs, you have to type the names of both of them and you add a bunch of hyphen HVCFQ <laughs> right. switches to make it do what you want. And then somebody's, because all, all that the, the original developer wanted was just something that worked. Yep. Um, and then later on, somebody will come along and build an interface for it. And that command line thing is still happening underneath, but somebody else came along and built the buttons and the windows and the image previews and all that kind of stuff. And so you can use either one. And yep. we don't get that for a lot of the software that we use now, um, although a lot of it is still there. You can use a lot of the software on your computer um, by pulling up the command prompt in either Windows or Mac and you can still use some of that software, which is kind of an interesting thing that most people probably never bother to do. Right. I mean, you know, to sort of to to use a familiar analogy, it's the difference between natural language searching in Lexis or West and Boolean searching, right? So if, if you want like the power tool, you do Boolean searching. You could use natural language and get all 100 results or whatever. But if you really want to get down, you do the within five words or within two words, like that gets you, on, you know, close to the metal. That's the same thing that happens to computers too. Like if you learn to get to the command line, if you learn how to work with the text interfaces below it, you can actually do more exciting and interesting things. Um, I will say learning to code is probably a little bit dangerous because um, if you're a lawyer and, and you do learn to code and you actually learn how to do it well enough to start building cool stuff, um, you're probably not going to be able to stay a lawyer much longer <laughs> um, just because you're going to realize how many, other, how, many, how many doors you've just opened for yourself. Yeah, I mean, and for my for my own sake, and you know, I sort of I laugh at this because that's actually happened to me. Is that I'm not practicing at the moment, um, though I, I expect at some point that I'm going to go back to to practice. Um, you know, the uh, that's that, that's a lot of there's a lot of truth to that. Um, though I think the 
where we really will sort of, the real tipping point will be at the, uh, at the moment where lawyers are just sort of naturally expected to be working with code problems mm-hmm. on a day-to-day level. Um, and I think that I think that day is you know not that far off. I think that as we start getting to a world in which data analytics um, matters to actual decision making on a day to day basis, um, I think at the point at which um, you know you're expected to work with APIs to a certain extent, and maybe that day will never come. Um, but if that day does come, then lawyers won't be able to leave the practice of law. They're just going to have to learn how to code anyway. Yeah, that, that could be true. <laughs> and and in that, I mean, that's the kind of thing where you're just like, God, why won't Clio talk to my accounting software? And you're just like, yeah, eh, screw it. I'll make them. I'll I'll do it. Yep. And you yeah, can make and it happen. Exactly. And you know, for me, the thing that actually sort of was revolutionary is is learning how to um, <laughs> how to pull down cases, um, actual judicial opinions. Um, without having to go to you know like the four steps or five steps to get the case, I just knew how to type in the citation, and then I could get the case. And all of a sudden, I've saved myself four or five steps mm-hmm. every single time I write a thing. Um, and you know, once you start seeing, oh, I can do this one thing, you know, it's it really it as you said, it becomes dangerous. You you start to see a lot of opportunity. And to circle back, you start seeing new solutions to old problems. Correct. And you become yeah. and you become a legal hacker. Yep, then that's 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 where I am, right? So, yep. uh, and there there are actually a lot of people out there, you know. So one of the um, one of the sort of the jokes that we have at ATNF is we have actually we have a fair number of lawyers um, who came into ATNF not knowing how to code, but now who code. I bet. <laughs> um, and we have a, we have a bunch of uh, we actually have a couple of people who came in as coders who learned to be lawyers as well. Um, and so you know, there's a growing legal hacker community. Um, a growing group of folks who sort of understand the value of this uh, of this space and um, who I think will make meaningful contributions both to the law and to software. Very cool. So the answer is lawyers should absolutely learn, learn to code and one of the best places to start is at codingforlawyers.com. I can't disagree with that. <laughs> David, thank you so much for being with us today and talking about this. And um, I'm, I'm just sending people to your website when they have questions because I'm hoping we're lighting a fire under some people and uh, hopefully they'll get started. And for sure, if you actually do find yourself on my website and you actually have questions about how to code a thing, feel free to email me and I'll try to set up time to work with you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Absolutely. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.